The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC can be found online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. If you have your Bibles or if you're watching online, I um, hope you have your Bibles as well. I encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 8. Do want to give a congratulations to Team Haddock. They successfully defeated uh, my team for the first time since this thing started. But I remind myself a couple of things. One, you can't win every time or people will get discouraged. And two, two, I don't know, but uh, even Tom Brady had an off year, right? So anyway, we will try to redeem ourselves last year. Did, did he compare himself to Tom Brady? Yes, he did, but <laughs> got to do something to pick myself up off the floor. Second was, uh, I don't remember, but uh, something, I don't know. The morning of September 11, 2011, I was 31 years old. Abby was five months pregnant with Joel, our first. We were building a home, and um, I'd been a pastor. I'd been a youth pastor for quite a while, but it was only my second year as uh, being a pastor. And I was in the Word and praying, getting ready to spend some time in prayer. My phone rang, and my mom said, have you seen what's on the news? And I, I said, well, no, Mom, I'm not watching TV. And so I turned on the television to see um, the World Trade Center on fire, and like I can remember vividly like where I was sitting, the angle I was looking at the television and was just kind of listening to the news reporters. And um, you could tell they, they were in disbelief. I was in disbelief, and it was even making it more surreal, surreal to hear how they were struggling. And I, I can remember watching it in real time when the first building collapsed. And I was like, it just took my breath away. Um, and then it wasn't very long after and the second building collapsed. And I was just like, like it, was, it was the weirdest thing I'd ever experienced as an American. I'd heard about things like Pearl Harbor, but this, this was happening in my life. My life was just beginning. My family was just beginning. And I remember it caused a lot of different emotions inside of me. Um, and I turned the television off, and I, I stood up and started to pray, and I sang to him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I proceeded to sing through the hymn and spend time talking to the Lord to begin preparing for how am I supposed to navigate through this as a minister. And do want to remember all of those um, who perished that day and all of those who gave their lives um, in defense of our country in response to that um, since that time and that event took place. Everything changed at that moment. Everything. Like, there was a major shift in America. From a minister's perspective, one thing you thought about is, man, there was, there was a real like attention toward faith. Like churches, 
they got full quick. Like people responded. We, we had a prayer and worship night, and then people came. And people wanted to be together, and people wanted to pray, and people, the country was united. It, was, it felt more united than I had ever experienced. And so I began to think, well, maybe, that, maybe we're on the verge of a spiritual awakening, a revival in my lifetime. And that quickly faded as people went on about their business, and that fire that was started spiritually sort of waned over the years. But everything changed. The way you went to, like the TSA did not exist, right? Is that what they call it? That was not in his existence. You could get through the airport pretty easy. That all shifted. Everything, man, everything changes. And, and even some of, some of the laws that were created that are still impacting us to this day, things shifted. And so the world is different. And so if you were born, um, if you were a kid during that time, you don't realize how different the world was before that. Um, and it seems to be that it is continuing to shift in greater and greater ways. But that shift was nothing just to kind of give us a perspective on a shift. That shift was nothing compared to the shift that took place when Jesus came to the planet. And I don't think we think about that very often, but when Jesus showed up on the planet, things shifted, man. They, like, they shifted in a dramatic way. Even to this day, we can look back and the central most influential person who has ever lived is Jesus. And there was a shift that took place in the world. And there was miraculous events that were going on during the time that Jesus, the God-man, was actually walking on the planet. And it was an incredible shift. His second coming will bring even a greater shift. And we need to be aware of that as believers. We need to think about it. It needs to be on the forefront of our minds. And that is why Jesus came to John while he was in prison on the island of Patmos. And he gave him this vision so that the church would understand that we're headed toward a climactic event. The world, like humanity, from the beginning of time, we've been headed toward this climactic event. And it is the return of Christ. There are three major moves of God in the Bible that we see that are recorded. And the first one is during the time of the forming of the nation of Israel that is rooted in the promise that God gave to Abraham that teaches us who God really is. I will make you a father of many nations. And he prayed and he came and visited one man. And he began to hammer out in time, in history, a message to all of humanity of who he was and what his... Um, his love for the world was like, what sin and darkness is like, what holiness is like, how we are separated from him, and that he would come and he would repair all that. And, and so he makes this promise to Abraham, who doesn't even have any land, and he's going to be the father of a great nation. Well, in time, that nation um, turns into a family, and a 70 of them Because of a famine, because of world events at that time, God used a famine to move them to Egypt. And Joseph, we know the story. There was lots of of corruption going on with his brothers that he ends up being sold into slavery. And he goes on into Egypt ahead of them and becomes, through God's sovereignty, (laughs) he moves from prison to being second in command of all of Egypt. And through his 
um, ability because God sovereignly enabled him to interpret some dreams of a pagan leader. He's elevated to a position of authority. And he's used during this famine to make Egypt wealthy. And wealthy, Egypt becomes this wealthy um, nation. It's a world power at that time. And it is under the direction of a Jewish man by the name of Joseph, who is a descendant of Abraham, who received a promise that God would make him a father of many nations. That this guy, this Egypt, Egypt at this time becomes a wealthy nation. Because he has him... He has the people store up grain in preparation for a famine that is coming that will last for seven years. And so they store the grain and then they are able to sell the grain to the people when all the world is in need. And it is during that time that Joseph's brothers and his father, Jacob, moved to Egypt and Joseph becomes a savior for them and they move outside into an area of Goshen. And 400 years later, they had grown into a, a, a people of in excess of a million. Uh, most estimated um, somewhere between a, a million and two million people. But they were used as slaves in Egypt at this time because Joseph was dead. He was long since removed. And so now they are large enough to be a nation and the promise is able to be fulfilled, but they have no land. They have no law. They have no government. They're slaves living in Egypt. And through, again, a corrupt leader who is worried about how many Jewish people there are, he begins the process of infanticide, and every Jewish male that is born is to be executed. And so Moses is born during that time, a time of despair, a time where this young family was starting out and they were having their children and he was the firstborn male and he was going to have to, to die because he was a Jewish male. And his mother put him in the river near where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. It was a strategic decision on her part. And the baby Moses in the basket begins to cry and Pharaoh's daughter has her maids go retrieve him. And you know the story. He ends up, like his sister runs up, and, and she's watching from a distance, and she runs up and says, you want me to find a maid to nurse him? And she says, yes, go find one of the Hebrew women. And, and so Moses' mother actually gets to nurse him um, until he's old enough to be weaned, and then he goes to live in royalty with Pharaoh's daughter. And he grows up, and he is a leader in Egypt, and God puts a call on his life, and he recognizes through God's sovereignty that He's, he's out of the place where he's living. He's supposed to be doing something else. And we know the whole story of the burning bush and all of that. And God calls him, you're going to lead my people out. And this is the first time, the first event we have in biblical history where God moves on the world in a miraculous way. And we have the 10 plagues of Egypt that, that Moses issues to the Pharaoh and says, if you don't let the people go, then um, like this is going to happen. And there's going to be a plague of, of locusts, a plague of frogs, a plague of darkness, a plague of death. There are these 10 plagues and, and all of these different things. And so Pharaoh doesn't do it. And it is, even it says that the scripture, God allowed his heart to be hard. His heart, these events would harden Pharaoh's heart even harder. And ultimately, the Israelites were released. They had a miracle 
of the Red Sea that was parted to allow them to enter into the promised land. And these are all historical things that happened in the nation of Israel. And we learn them from the Bible and we learn them from other um, writings as well. And so we look at that and we go, man, that's, that's pretty fascinating. But they're all also pictures of the second time that God would move in a miraculous way. Because that parting of the Red Sea, we look at that and we go, man, that just seems impossible. It is impossible. It's a miracle. It is the hand of God accomplishing something on the planet supernatural for all of humanity to be able to look at and go, man, God is behind this. This isn't some carved image that is being talked about. These things were prophesied about how God would deliver the people and raise up a nation and so that all of the people groups of all the world could look to Israel and know that God chose Israel not just because he loves Israel. He loves all people and he wants all people to look at one people group and to learn about how to follow him. And that's why the miraculous events have to happen. And so the Red Sea miracle happens to let them go into the promised land and we get to the New Testament and it is the second time that the major move of God. Now, God has been moving throughout history and will always move. God moves today. We see miraculous things happen, but it's not the same as what Moses' lifetime was, and it's not the same as when Jesus walked on the planet. There's a special move of God. So God is a miracle-working God, and he's always in the business of working miracles, and we can pray and ask for miraculous healings, and sometimes we will see them, and sometimes we won't. But when Moses was leading Israel, God was doing things in a very loud way. He was shouting at humanity. And when Jesus walked on the planet, God was doing things in an amazing way because he was literally in the flesh of of Jesus. He was fully God and he was fully man. And God was shouting to the planet. And that's why Jesus did the miracles that he did so that people would know he in fact was God. He was not a normal human being. And the Red Sea miracle of the New Testament is the cross of Calvary when Jesus dies and in three days he rises from the dead to part the Red Sea for us so that we might enter the promised life. And so that is the Red Sea miracle. And so the, the, the Red Sea is a picture of what God would do. Moses is giving us a picture of what God would do ultimately to spare all of humanity from their sin and save them from his wrath. And so the second time we see a move of God in a miraculous way is during the time of Jesus. The third time is when Jesus will return and there will be a major shift. So things shifted during the time of Moses, things shifted in a major way during the time of Jesus, and when as Jesus prepares to return, there will be a major shift and move of God. And we see that in chapter eight. And so it's, uh, it's um, these trumpets that we get into, it's one of the, it's a fascinating chapter, it's a hard chapter. <laughs> Okay? Probably the most difficult interpretation I've made in 30 years of, of preaching. And it's one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture, but it's also one of the most terrifying. So it has these two things going on in it. And the trumpets that we get to, there are seven trumpets that are blown. We know that we have seven seals. Six of the seals have been opened. When we get to the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets, and then there are seven bowls. And some scholars believe that the seven trumpets are further explanation of the seals that have already been opened in a deeper way, and, um, and the seven bowls still further still explain it even deeper, and it gets more and more detailed as John gets more and more of the vision. Other scholars believe that the seventh seal contains the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls, and they telescope out of it, and these things will happen chronologically. And so as we look at that, 
we see these three major moves, we're looking and reading about a major move that is yet to happen. And that we are to be focused on, not to the point of obsession of trying to figure out dates, but to this point of allowing it to create a sense of urgency and focus for us as believers of what really matters in life. Because there are so many things that are trying to distract us and, and things that aren't necessarily evil on the surface, but probably rooted down deep. If we get obsessed with them, they are evil. Materialism is evil. Like that's why the Lord says the love of money is the root of evil. And so when we boil materialism down and think that we got to have this, we got to have that, and we just keep wanting, 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 and we're driven to earn money or achieve things because of the material benefits and pleasures that we'll provide in our lives, that is an evil way to approach life. And so we, we have to guard as believers understanding we live in a society that is designed to take us and make us focus on those things. It makes us focus. Like even, I'm going to get, boy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread on some thin ice right here, bro. You ready? I don't even think I should say this, but my wife's not up here, so I will. <laughs> I have to be careful about hunting because it can be something that distracts me. I can think, man, I got to go hunt. I got to go do this. I got to be in the outdoors. I, and, and all of a sudden, my life becomes obsessed and consumed with something that doesn't really matter. It could be things that I want to do, projects at home even. It could be anything. It could be the amount of money that I can um, save up. It's, so all of these things are trying to constantly distract us, and they're trying to distract you. And so we have to be aware of them. So God has given us the book of Revelation, uh, something to help us to have eyes of faith so that we are not distracted by our physical eyes that the enemy will use to sway us and get us distracted and lead us away from the mission that is most important in life, and that is honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, serving in his kingdom, spreading the good news of the gospel. Because we'll see in chapter 8, there's good news and there's bad news. And, and Sean was kind of hitting on something today that is kind of a theme of of, uh, of revelation is that, man, he was talking about the sin and the weight of it and all of that and trying to understand it. The, the truth of the matter is you can't really receive the good news until you understand the bad news. And when you understand the bad news, and the bad news is that you're offensive to God in your, in your sinfulness and, and all of your wickedness remains because there is no forgiveness of your sins. There's no covering. Once you begin to comprehend that and, 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 and embrace it and realize, man, and I don't think we can ever fully comprehend it. I don't think we can ever really get to a place where we understand the holiness of God. <laughs> like we, we take the best human being that we know, the person that has lived the model life, and we don't see holiness. We see sinfulness. We see a person that's marred. But when we look to God, this is why no man can look at God and live because he is so holy. He's, he's totally separate and distinct from us. And so we can never really wrap our minds around how wickedness and sin cannot be in his presence. It just can't. And that is the need for him to come and provide the 
New Testament Red Sea miracle of the cross and the resurrection. The resurrection is, is the parting of the Red Sea because all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved and they are covered by his blood. This is why we talk so much about the blood. We are covered, our sin is covered so that now we can be in the presence of God because he now looks at us as um, people, uh, I think the Bible calls it in the old King James, the propitiation of our sins. He propitiated them. He took them out of us and covered us with Christ so that now he can bear to be in our presence. You see that? And so like, so when we, when we understand that, man, then we get to a point where we go, okay, I get the gospel. And we can sing about the good news and we can share the good news because we know that it's but for the grace of God, we would all perish. I was driving to church today, man, and I, I passed a biker and three runners. And I thought to myself, each time I passed them, Lord, do, do they know you, Lord? Does that man know you? Does that woman know you, Lord? Like, I pray over her right now. I don't know the eternal destiny of that soul. And I just... The Lord, I think, has kind of helped me to see that, and I, I think the book of Revelation does that for you. I remember when I first gave my life um, to the Lord and, and really sold out as a young man. I remember having thoughts like that often. I remember flying or driving down um, Douglas Boulevard in Oklahoma City, which is, or Midwest City, which is 29th Street. It's been a while since I lived there. But it goes right by Tinker Field in this the, the jets will fly over and land right there. I mean, they fly low. Sometimes you'll be driving, you'll be like, whoa. And I could see the pilot. And I remember thinking, does he know you, Lord? It's easy when I get distracted to quit thinking that. It's easy to pass uh, 10 cyclers and just think, man, they're in the road, right? But you guys go somewhere else and ride. But we need to, like, so the book of Revelation and all of these thoughts that I'm describing to you, man, the Lord, he, he's given us this. He's given us a vision to understand what is really important in life so that we can keep ourselves living as kingdom citizens and not allowing the world to encroach in upon us that people don't recognize that we belong to Jesus. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And so we look at all of that and I worried about the sermon being too short, and I haven't even started. It's not going to be too long. But don't worry. Don't worry, Ron. The Chiefs don't play till like 3 o'clock. We've got plenty of time. So we get to this eighth chapter, and we see that where God will start to move. And we've been learning about it with the breaking of these seals. And all of this noise has been going on in heaven the four beings that are flying around the throne with the different faces that are crying out, holy, holy, holy. The saints are beneath the altar in this vision and they're crying out to God, how long before you will um, vindicate us? The, the, the different angels are calling forth, come, and there are riders riding across this scene on different horses. All of these things are happening. Man, it has been a noisy place. There's been lightning and thunder and, and, and sounds of an earthquake. And John is in the midst of all of this, man, and it's overwhelming. We get to verse 1, and it says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, I think when he describes this, I don't know that if it's exactly 30 minutes, but it's, it's a short time. 
But even if it were exactly 30 minutes, just think of dead silence. We can't stand silence, you know? We got radios everywhere. You can't, I know I don't even have radios. We, we, I don't know what you call them now, but we got things that play music everywhere. <laughs> we used to call them iPods and I don't know. They, everywhere, we got noise, man. But there's just silence. It just becomes silent. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Many scholars believe these are the angels that stand in the presence of God and that there are seven uh, angels that are, uh, that, that, that they, uh, they kind of, uh, in an in a angelic hierarchy, they're at the top. And like Gabriel would be one because when he comes to visit people, he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of the Lord. They're given seven trumpets. And another angel who had the golden censer came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people. On the golden altar in front of the throne and the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it onto the earth and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So there's silence, man. It's like a calm before the storm. Things through the opening of the six seals have been projected as getting bad, but when we get to the seventh seal, man, they're going to turn and get really bad. In the, in the Jewish temple, the priest would have to go in and offer this, this prayer of incense, and so we always have an earthly thing going on that shadows what is happening in heaven. Zechariah, when he was going into the temple and the angel came to him and said, you're going to, uh, you're going to have a son. And remember, he couldn't speak because he questioned how was this going to happen? And he was, going, he was going to be the father of John the Baptist. And, and during that moment, what he was doing, he had the duty of burning this incense. And so now we see a picture that this is happening in heaven before God. But what's fascinating is, is that in this picture, the prayers of God's people are mixed with this incense, and it rises up before the throne of God that we saw a couple of chapters ago of he who sits on the throne, that God the Father sits there, and he makes judgments and has control of the entire world, and has since the beginning of creation because he created it. The prayers of God's people rise up before him. And in this uh, context, the prayers of the saints, remember they were praying that were beneath the altar, whether they are martyred saints or saints throughout all of time that people have come into the kingdom and they rise up. How long, God, before you justify all of this? This world is so broken. How long before you fix it? All of creation begs and yearns and groans for God to fix all of the fallenness and the brokenness. And so like, how long, Lord? There's silence in heaven. Those prayers come before the God. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all of the green grass was burned up. We see the plague of hail in the 10 plagues of Moses and so that's why I say these things, they, they parallel. 
I'll give you some interpretation here in a moment, but let's just keep going through all of the, the trumpets. The second angel sounded his trumpet, trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the, another, and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the um, sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard the, an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. As if that's not bad enough. Earth Day is going to be hard to celebrate on this happens, right? This is bad. And so we look at that and we go, what is going on here? Well, there are different ways to make interpretations on this, all right? So when you approach the book of Revelation, and I, I taught you guys this a few weeks ago, there is a there is more of a figurative approach that everything is read and, and understood figuratively unless it's, it's quite obvious that it's literal. And, and so all of the, the, everything for the most part people would interpret and, and see, a, see it as symbolic as something. So like the number seven is the number of perfection and so that means something perfect about something. That's why the seven spirits of God uh, are symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The number 1,000 is a, a number that represents completeness. And so when we get to the thousand-year reign of Christ, we see a complete reign of Christ or a long period of time, not exactly a 1,000 years. Well, then there are other people who, another school of thought is to make an interpretation that is more, um, it's kind of a combination of literal and symbolic. And so they view things as being literal unless there is a reason to make an interpretation of something symbolic, like a dragon with many horns and heads. They don't literally believe it's a literal dragon. And so they, sometimes they are criticized in that school of thought for being inconsistent because they don't carry the uh, symbolism all the way to the end. And so the popular way to interpret in our day and age, for the most part, when you hear about the rapture and the books like the, what are they called? The, what are those books called? Left Behind. That's right. That, that would be more of the taking most of it literal and some of it figurative. And so I told you where I'm at. I'm kind of eclectic. I borrow from a little bit of everything. And so I'm going to work through these trumpets and I'm going to give you both sides of that, that coin. And, uh, then you can be about as clear as I am. <laughs> okay, so the first trumpet, we have the literal interpretation would be there would be hell, fire, and it's mixed with blood because it causes death. There's a, a, a massive amount of death that comes with this first plague that hits the planet when the seventh seal is open. The, the physical or the figurative uh, interpretation would be that that 
there is a famine that happens and it's more of a spiritual famine. It causes, like we know that the first horseman uh, or the second horseman brought in famine with it. And so I see this and, as, and from a figurative standpoint that it would be a spiritual famine on the land that causes spiritual death, okay? Now track with me here. I'm gonna put all this together in a minute. The second trumpet is a huge burning mountain. So first, like again, literal is there actually will be some kind of cosmic event that happens that, that, that is extremely destructive, a hailstorm that could cause fire, and we don't know how that could happen, but it could happen, right? Fires can happen when electrical things are destroyed, so we don't know exactly how it happens. The second trumpet has a huge burning mountain thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turns to blood, a third of the creatures die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. So the literal interpretation of this would be that an asteroid or something, or a volcano, I think this one is a volcano erupts, and, and, and the, the, they, they don't give an explanation for the blood exactly. They say, man, that could be lava. Things, there could be massive death in, in what John saw, and that caused the blood to, or the sea to appear red. It doesn't literally mean that the sea turns red. And that a third of uh, the shipping industry is destroyed, which you could imagine, it's hard to get stuff right now during this pandemic. Just imagine a third of the ship's gone. Whoa. That would, that would cause a real delay for Amazon products, right? And so a third of that is gone, and a third of the creatures die. The figurative interpretation of that second trump would be that the mountain is a government, and the government is cast into, um, it, it is burning, and the sea are people. This is not crazy to interpret this way, because oftentimes sea and people go hand in hand, the sea of the Gentiles, and so they're used to describe, so sometimes the sea in apocalyptic literature means people. And so they see the, the huge mountain as a government, the sea as people, um, the dying creatures are people that are dying, and the ships they think could be churches, okay? You tracking with me? All right, we got two more trumpets. And these build on one another. The third trumpet, the literal would be um, this fiery star that falls, could be a great asteroid or a comet, or it could be a nuclear weapon, right? And it falls and it strikes a third of the fresh water. And it becomes bitter, and people die from drinking poison water. They don't die immediately, but as they ingest this in time, it, it impacts their health and they die, okay? The figurative is, that this is living water that is polluted. Jesus says, I am the living water. And so even the people who are supposed to be teaching the people about living water, the great spiritual movement will be polluted. People drink false teaching and they die spiritually, right? And there's a, there's a massive spiritual deception. Then the fourth trumpet, you have the sun, the moon, and the stars experience an extended eclipse and it disrupts the climate, okay? That's the literal interpretation. You could just imagine if there was an extended eclipse, how it disrupt our environment. Now, what's fascinating about this is you, you look at that and you go, man, oh, this climate change, something could be going on there, right? Um, I don't know. Are you guys getting any more certain? Or am I just confusing you? I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. All right, so the figurative would be the world gets spiritually dark and ripe for a greater 
deception. And things just continue to, people fall deeper and deeper into sin, much like Pharaoh fell deeper and deeper into a harder and harder heart. Um, the first four trumpets are bad, but the next three are worse. Which interpretation is correct? It is impossible to know because it has not happened yet. That's just the bottom line. It's impossible to know. We can look at it, and one thing we can surmise from all of that is something bad is going down in the future. An eclectic approach, the way I look at it, maybe it's not either or, but both and. Maybe both of these things are happening, and we see a picture of a type and a picture of what's happening physically and what's happening spiritually at the same time. And so I look at these things, and I, 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 I look at that and go, man, I, I don't know. Like, I can't, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you this is exactly what's going to happen and be so dogmatic about it. I, I think that's wrong, because I don't think you can have such certainty, and I think that's why there's liberty in interpreting this. But I can teach you and go, man, the book of Revelation, it teaches that something like this is going to happen, and we're headed toward it. And right now, in the chaos that we feel that we're living in, we feel like a shift could happen, much like a shift that happened on 9-11 in America changed, much like a shift happened during this pandemic, and all of a sudden, life as we knew it changed. We begin to see that things are fragile, and the Lord, with just a snap of his fingers, can shift everything that we know as normal. But regardless of which interpretation is correct, our focus should be on verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, we see this opening of the seal, there's silence in heaven, and all of a sudden it says that an angel with this golden censer has incense on it. He mixes the prayer of the saints with this incense. It rises up before God, and God casts it back to the planet. And I think it's somewhat of an answer to the prayer that the prayers beneath the altar, or the saints beneath the altar are praying, how long before you vindicate us, Lord? We're going through terrible tribulation. How long before you you make things right, and the prayers ascend to God, and that silence before um, the trumpets are blown is the silence before the storm as God answers the prayer and says, it is time, and things start to really roll. I want to turn your attention in wrapping this thing up to Luke chapter 18, because you're going to think, what? Man, I went to church today, and the preacher was talking about asteroids hitting the sea and a third of the people dying. What in the world am I supposed to do this week? Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, Jesus teaches a parable. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, 
when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I think Jesus is painting a picture here for us of that. I think this is connected to chapter 8 of Revelation. When he comes, will he find faith on earth? What's fascinating to me is that Jesus links prayer with faith. When he comes, will he find faith on earth? Last week, according to this, your faith is measured by how much time you spent talking to God. That kind of hits, doesn't it? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people that are actually talking to him, that he has made a way to part the Red Sea, cover their sin, and let them enter the promised life? Will he find faith on earth? And we looked at it and we go, man, because see, here's, the, here's what's interesting to me. It's fascinating. Is that all of these things that distract us are the things that make it hard for us to pray. We get so busy about pursuing things that we don't have time to meet with the Lord, and so like it impacts our faith in a tremendous way, and Jesus is trying to show us something very, very important when it comes to life. And here are three takeaways from this. The first one is this, always pray. Just pray all the time, man. Pray like I was pray on, praying on the way to church. Pray in the morning, get in the word and get your head wrapped around some truth and have a little bit of time of prayer in the morning. Pray before you go to bed at night. Pray when you wake up in the morning. Get in the habit of when the first thing you do when you lay your head on the pillow at night is to say good night to Jesus. And when you wake up in the morning, say good morning, Jesus. And when you get to lunch, pray. Just talk to God and pray all the time. That's what Jesus is saying. Look at this person here, this judge, he's wicked and he don't like, he don't believe in God and he don't care what people think, but because this woman wouldn't leave him alone, she got justice in her life. And Jesus is saying, man, if you want to have faith and you want to see God move in your life, then you need to be talking to him all the time. Not just like every once in a while. Like Jesus is your like, he's God, man. And so we, he's, Jesus is saying, always pray. And the second thing he's saying is right there in the first part. He says, always pray, always pray and not give up. Never give up on prayer. When you have something that's burden you, burdening, burdening you, just never give up on taking it to the Lord in prayer. Just keep taking it to him. Keep talking to him about it. Keep bringing it until you get an answer from the Lord. And, and we see that Jesus is saying that. And the third takeaway is persistent prayer is productive. When we pray that way, man, we will see the Lord move. That's what he's saying to us. And we need a vision that when we pray a prayer, when and it comes out of our heart and out of our mouth that it ascends up to the throne of God. It is mixed with incense, and when the Lord says it is time, he will return that prayer back to the planet with an answer. And when he comes, will he find faith on earth? People who are living like that. Not people who come to church on Sunday. What good you do to come to church on Sunday if you don't talk to the Lord on Monday? What good you do to come to church and give and do all these other things if you're not having a conversation with the Lord? This is why Jesus said, man, these people came to me and they said, we did this, we did that, we cast out demons in your name and we did all these things. He said, depart from me. Why? Because I never knew you. You never, like, I don't even know who you are. And so I look at that and I go, wait a minute, man. Wait a minute. So, so, so part of this could be if, if we're not praying, we could go, ah, oh, this just feels weight. I'm like missing it. You can't approach it like that, man. You got to approach it like 
If I talk to the Lord, my prayer ascends up to him, and there's something that's happening with it. If I believe that Jesus is real and he's gonna, he saved me from um, his wrath and he's forgiven me of my sins, when I talk to him about the things that are going on in my life, then what happens is the Lord starts moving in us and we get in the word and we're starting to talk to him. He starts moving in us and we are able to keep our perspective with eyes of faith so that things that distract us that are physical won't get us off track and and we get obsessed with hunting, we get obsessed with uh, making money, we get obsessed with uh, climbing a, a corporate ladder, now I'm talking to Jesus and Jesus will keep me on the narrow road and I will find life in that place. And there will be an urgency about me. And if he were to come back next week, he will find faith in me. If he were to come back next year, he will find faith in me. And so that's what faith looks like. Faith looks like it's alive, it's living, it's walking with Jesus. If you want to be my disciple, he said, take up your cross and follow me. How are you going to know how to follow him if you're not talking to him? If you're not talking to him, you don't even know where he's going. You see, God is everywhere, and he's moving in every way. But we can't let that cause us to disregard our responsibility as citizens of the kingdom to be talking to him. Because as God is moving in every way, there are people who are experiencing both his grace and his wrath. And so as citizens of the kingdom, we are to be people who are talking to the king, sometimes on behalf of people who do not know him. And as we talk to him, he will lead us. And so the big idea for you today is pray. Just pray. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for people that you do life with. Pray for people that you run into. You can pray while you're having a conversation with someone, but be a person of prayer. And when the Son of Man comes, he will find faith on the earth. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at overlandpark.cc.